When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most emergency-approved news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Kat Delange. I'm our features editor. Joining us this week is New Scientist reporter Michael LePage. Hi, Michael. Hello. Coming up on the show, we've got Chris Packham talking about the connectedness of the modern world and why we all need to understand more about it. And from Australia, our reporter Donna Liu is going to tell us about how they've basically solved their coronavirus problem, as well as the situation with coronavirus in China and how they already have a vaccine rolled out there. We're also going to learn more about what's been called the breakthrough of the year. That's DeepMind's success in the protein folding problem. And we've got a story on how dinosaurs might have been able to regenerate and a look at volcanoes around the solar system. But first, a quick reminder of a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 30% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to newscientist.com slash pod 30. Yes, that link will automatically give you the discount. You don't need a code. Just go to newscientist.com slash pod 30 and you'll get the money off when you subscribe. You get all the benefits of the premium content in the mag, plus access to the unparalleled treasures of the archive. And we'll be telling you a bit later about a special holiday live event for subscribers. Newscientist.com slash pod 30. But first, we're going to start with the news that the UK has approved the use of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, uh, which is uh, incredible news. Um, But there has been some concern that the approval has happened too fast. Michael, you've been reporting on this. Should we be worried? Well, personally, I'm not worried and I'll be queuing up to get this vaccine as as soon as I possibly can. Uh, There's actually been this rolling uh, review process where the companies have been giving information to the regulators uh, since the start of the phase three trials. So that's been going on for months now. So, uh, you know, if there are any sort of problems with the sort of protocols or anything like that, that that should all have been sort of spotted already. And I think, you know, this is an emergency. What we're getting here is emergency authorization, not full approval. So I think it's quite right that it's unfast. I mean, we are in a situation where hundreds of people are, are dying every day in the UK alone. And, and we need this vaccine. I think the last time we discussed this vaccine, um, we weren't sure that it necessarily worked or how well it worked in older people than in vulnerable groups. Do we have an update on that? Uh, the information from Pfizer is that it, it, it's very effective basically in everyone. They've tested it on a diverse group of people and they're saying in people aged between 65 and 85 it's 94 percent effective which is just brilliant news i think there's always this big worry that vaccines wouldn't work 
as well in the elderly. And of course, it's the you know people over over 50 who are most at risk. So this is just great news. And I think with, with something that happened so fast, one concern people have is about safety. What do we know about how safe the vaccine is? According to the company, there have been no serious adverse effects in, in, in the trials at all. So you get the normal reactions to a vaccine and there can be pain at the injection sites and you can feel tired and get a headache and symptoms like that. That's basically your immune system kicking in. That's actually a sign that the vaccine is working. I guess another thing everyone wants to know is who's going to get it first? So the situation at the moment is that at the top of the list should be older people in care homes, uh, people who work uh, at the front line of the health services, and then going on to older people more generally. There are some questions around how the vaccine can be delivered into care homes because it has to be transported in these special uh, ultra-cold suitcases that carry about a thousand doses. And so there are logistical issues when it comes to splitting those up between individual care homes. So that's something that the government is going to have to sort out. Michael, we're going to stay with you because we want to turn now to the other big story of the week, the DeepMind Artificial Intelligence AlphaFold, or AlphaFold 2 it is, that's had amazing success in solving the protein folding problem. So if you put aside the small feat of designing and rolling out a vaccine within a year, then uh, people are saying that this is the breakthrough of 2020. But like, can you introduce it for us? What, like, tell, what is the protein folding problem? So if you've looked at down cells in a microscope in school, you might think a cell is just a bag of fluid, but actually they highly organise structures and that there's sort of all sorts of pro- amazing protein machineries in our cell. There's sort of transporters that walk along little tracks, that turbines that turn and, and generate energy. All those things are made out of proteins and they work because those proteins have a specific structure. I mean, proteins are basically long strings of amino acids but as they made, they fold up into these specific shapes, which can be extremely complex. And the protein folding problem is working out what those shapes are. So up until this time, it's been a pretty difficult problem to do. Basically, the only reliable way we've had of doing it is doing experiments where you have to do things like x-ray crystallography. And that's that's really difficult because basically, you have, first of all, you have to make lots of a specific protein. Then you have to get it to crystallize, which can be extremely difficult. Then you, you fire x-rays through it and you get these diffraction patterns that can be quite hard to interpret. In some cases, they can't be interpreted at all. So it takes a long time and it's really expensive. And we haven't been able to compute what the linear string of amino acids, how that would fold up into a protein, because the prob- the computational problem has just been so massive, isn't it? I mean, it's been said that there are, you know, more possible configurations for, for your average protein than there are atoms in the universe. So it's a, it's a problem we haven't been able to solve by brute force. Exactly. And one of the reasons for that is those configurations all those different configurations that's what could happen if you just chucked a a ready-made protein in some water and let it do its thing what actually happens in the cell is as the protein is made it interacts with what are called chaperone proteins and they sort of stabilize its structure and make it fold into the sort of same specific shape every time well Mm -hmm. most of the time sometimes it goes wrong in cells right but so what happens in cells is an orchestrated process i I mean i i think you could compare it to sort of knitting there's a predetermined pattern and it gets turned into this very complex pattern. And you have all these amazing shapes that different proteins can form based on their amino acid sequence. Okay, uh, I like the knitting analogy for, for this. Uh, but okay, tell us, can you tell us briefly how DeepMind has managed to tackle this problem then? 
So what, what they basically done is sort of take a database of the sequence of proteins and the structure of proteins that we've worked out already, and they've fed that into a machine learning system. And this uh, system has basically learnt that specific amino acid sequences correspond with these different shapes, and then it's worked out how to put these different bits together to work out the complete structure of protein. Now, of course, lots of different groups have actually been trying to do this for years, and there's been this long-running competition where any group that wants to enter gets sent the uh, sequence of proteins whose shape has been worked out but not yet published. And this year, DeepMind just smashed it. They got the, the best scores by far. So I think the, the sort of typical score in, in previous years has been something like 40 out of 100. And DeepMind's managed to get sort of more than 90 out of 100 for, for most of the proteins that it, it predicted the structure for. So it's, it's a huge advance. People will have heard of DeepMind because of the the chess and Go playing uh, versions of its uh, AI, so AlphaZero and AlphaGo. And so they sounds like they're working in a similar way. Like you give it the rules, and then it learns itself how to how to play the game or how to fold a protein. A few scientists have been unhappy though about what they've seen as hype over this announcement. How how do you see it? Well, I, I've seen two two different reactions. One of which I think, in some cases, has been played is this is going to make producing drugs easy, and it's it's not as simple as that. Now, this definitely does help drug development, but actually, what what we really want to do is not just predict protein structure. We want to go a step further. We want to say, right, now we know the structures. Can we predict how proteins interact with each other and with other molecules? That's a, a whole different challenge that hasn't been done yet. But if we can do that, then that really makes a big difference. For instance, what you could do with the coronavirus, as soon as we, we had the sequence of the coronavirus, you could work out the structure of those coronavirus proteins. You could then go and look at all the thousands of existing drugs and say which of these drugs would bind to these proteins uh, and would sort of work. And you could just cut out a huge amount of experimental work that's you know people have been doing with other drugs to sort of say, will these drugs work against the coronavirus? So if we can do that second part, then it really does make a difference for developing treatments. But I think it's it's been a bit simplified in, in the media and, and people are reacting to that. I think this, the second thing is DeepMind haven't released their full results. Or they haven't released the code. And I think some people are saying, well, we're not going to sort of believe until we actually see the code. But, you know, th- this is a this is an independent competition. And this announcement was actually came from the people who ran that competition, they actually said they it's it's the announcement of the results from the competition. It's not actually a deep mind announcement, although they obviously jumped are, on are it. Absolutely yeah. delighted about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what what I like about it is that um, it's got real world implications. You know, the 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 go and the chess stuff was really cool, but this is um, so deep mind call the things these things they're working on root node problems that things that are really hard that we know a little bit about but that and if you can fix it like you say it make a really big impact so it's this is not like chess or go um so you know that's why they're saying it's a a real this is something that can speed up science and that's what the founder that's what demis hasabis has been saying he wants to do with deep mind all along Absolutely. I, I think this is one of those things that the impact isn't, we're not going to see the impact immediately. It's not going to be obvious for some years, but it all adds together. So you've had the, the sort of genome revolution where we can now work out the amino acid sequence of any protein. Now, hopefully, DeepMind is going to help us work out the shape of any protein. And then if we can go further and solve that problem of how all these different molecules interact together. We're obviously doing that already through experiments and so on, but if we can sort of shortcut it and do a lot of that work in computers, 
then we're going to have this amazing understanding of all the machinery of cells. And that's just going to enable everything we want to do to happen so much faster. But it's going to take time. Now it's our life form of the week slot. Rowan, what is it this week? This week, it's the American alligator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's lots of wonderful things we could say about this animal. Uh, I'm going to confine myself to its tail. Uh, we all know that lizards can regenerate their tails, you know, if they fall off or get bitten off by an animal. Yeah. Um, but it's never been seen in the related but much bigger reptiles, such as alligators. But now it has. Yeah. So, and it turns out, actually, that field biologists in Louisiana had seen evidence of what looked like tail regrowth and and wound regeneration in alligators in the swamps. But now that's been confirmed. And we found that young alligators have this ability to regrow their tails up to about 23 centimetres or 18% of the total body length. Now I kind of want to know what what bit off the tail of an alligator? Uh, <laughs> Maybe it was, a, it was a prop of a boat or something, actually. Or, right, yeah, good right. point, good question. So, so does this shed any light on other animals that can't regenerate? Because obviously it's something that even in medical research, if we could get the power of regeneration, that's, that's yeah. massive. Yeah. Uh, well, one intriguing thing is that alligators are part of a clade called archosaurs, and that's got two living groups, the crocodilians, and that includes alligators, and the birds. But pterosaurs and dinosaurs are extinct members of that clade. So it's possible that some dinosaurs could regenerate too. Whoa, my my son will be very excited about that prospect. I hope there's some writers of the Jurassic World franchise listening because that's a free tip for them. You could could plausibly put wound regeneration ability into the dinosaurs. Okay, but so dinosaurs might have been able to regenerate, but birds don't have this ability. So that's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, birds can't do it, um, and that might help start to determine back in time when the ability was lost in evolutionary time. So birds are living dinosaurs, of course, but there's some non-avian dinosaurs that might have had this ability. Uh, And so Velociraptor is probably the most famous one that I could think of. But, okay, so Velociraptor loses its tail. While it's regenerating, is it just falling flat on its face all the time? <laughs> uh, well, they, they say it's only young animals that could do it. So perhaps they're, you know, they're still in their in their nursery. So they're just scrabbling around on. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The, the, the screenwriters can have uh, comedy velociraptors staggering around while they regenerate. Uh, but I have to say, no evidence has been found in the fossil record of this. Uh, but they're looking out for it on the basis of this alligator discovery. time out we want to tell you about a special live online event that's free to subscribers it's the new scientist christmas special live yes it's the end of year party and quiz with new scientist journalists and quiz master rowan hooper (laughs) yeah i'm hosting it it's on december the 17th i'll be asking some happy contestants questions such as what's the funniest story of the year or what's the best animal story of the year and what the best evidence-based tips for surviving 2021 it is going to be a fabulous party you're the host so no pressure rowan there's also uh, going to be a chance to ask your own questions to our panel the best questions will win a new scientist jigsaw go to newscientist.com events to find out more it's free for our subscribers but you do have to see Rowan as well as hear his voice, I'm afraid. (laughs) Yeah, not just me, thankfully. There's four other journalists from the magazine. 
newscientist.com slash events to find out and do join us. It's free for subscribers on December the 17th. Next up, Rowan spoke with the naturalist and broadcaster Chris Packham to talk about global connectivity, the food we eat, Brazil, deforestation and the Cerrado. I probably pronounced that terribly. So, Chris, you've been digging into an investigation that's just come out into deforestation in the Cerrado in Brazil and chickens eaten in the UK. I guess you better tell us first about the Cerrado. The Cerrado or Cerrado is a, an area of Brazil which ideally would still be covered with a, a rather unique tropical forest. It's not tropical rainforest in that sense, but it's a, a fabulous environment, incredibly biodiverse with lots of endemic species, species that you find there and nowhere else in the world. But very sadly, in recent times, it's been dramatically cleared and principally cleared to produce soybeans. And what's sad is that there is a direct connection between this environmentally destructive process and you and I, because the Bureau of Investigative Journalists have traced a shipment of soybeans from farms in the Sahado all the way back to the UK and then on to farms in the UK where this product is being fed to chickens, which end up in our supermarkets. And I suppose that the striking thing, the really uncomfortable thing about this is that the vast majority, 99.9% of people shopping at those outlets in the UK will have no idea at all that they are indirectly having an impact on the destruction of a remarkable ecosystem on the other side of the world. And it's this connectivity that I think that we need to explore and better understand if we are able, that's you and I, um, to have a more positive impact on our environment. Yeah, so the, the Cerrado, it's it's neglected, certainly in the public eye. You know, mo- many people, I suspect, won't have heard of it. And everyone's heard of the, the rainforest and in the 80s, if anyone remembers that far back, we had a lot of Save the Rainforest campaigns. You know, Sting was out there. We need something like that now, right? Well, there's a, there's a thing. We, we, we just do need a broader appeal. You know, I unfortunately spend a lot of my time preaching to the converted and to a relatively narrow audience. And I'm all too aware of that. We need people with different voices from different backgrounds with different perspectives to be, you know, bringing attention to these sorts of issues. And particularly, you know, when they're difficult to address. I mean, the the point is we've got our own deforestation issues and we have to be quite careful when we're wagging our fingers and pointing them overseas. I mean, only 13% of, uh, of the UK is covered with forest. We've got the lowest forest cover in Western Europe. France is 39%. We've only got 13 here. So we've done a pretty good job of deforesting the UK. So it's a bit cheeky sometimes for us to be telling other people not to cut their trees down. But but that connectedness that I've spoken about means that we that we should certainly be doing that. And we do need to, 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 to draw it to public attention. I've been to the Sahado on three occasions. On one of the occasions I went there, I went to an eight 800,000, 800,000, imagine the scale of this, 800,000 hectare soy farm. Now, there were some fragments of forest around the rivers where basically the land couldn't be ploughed. It was GM. And 80% of that that crop was going to China to feed pigs um, as the, the Chinese 
hunger for, for meat has, has grown in, in recent times. So, you know, to stand there and look over what was a vast plain of GM cob, which you know, on a previous visit, I'd been to a different part of the Sahado and looked over it and seen this incredible um, forest with rivers, tall trees, parrots, anteaters, maned wolf, jaguar, all, all of this incredible diversity. was It was in, incredibly sad, I have to say. Well, the other thing is that I know we mustn't finger wag, but the the whole the Amazon, the Cerrado, all together, it's a it's a globally important system for regulating rainfall, but also as a as a carbon sink. And if that, some people think that you know, if we get too much Amazon deforestation, that we'll reach a tipping point where the thing the the Amazon will just dry up, and and we might need the Cerrado to to maintain that in the entire system. So it's a it's a globally important carbon sink as well as uh, all the biodiversity value that we get from it. Yeah, Rowan, it, it is drying up. On, on, on one of the occasions that I, I, I was there, I went to um, a meteorological centre in Brazil uh, where in real time we could look at um, satellite images of rainfall over the entire, a massive country, Brazil, but the entire a Brazilian country. And talking to the meteorologists there, they were saying what we should be seeing is this, this and this. We should be seeing huge amounts of rainfall here at this time of year, huge amounts of rainfall here, and, and none of it was happening. And this is due to, to deforestation and, and the warming climate. There's no doubt about that. So it's another example of, of short-term greed, short-term thinking, long-term disaster. Yeah, and and just before we spoke today, I saw the Brazilian Space Agency uh, satellite data, and that's just shown that this year has now got the highest clearance of rainforest that we've ever seen. And, and last year was the highest for a decade, and it's gone up again this year. So that's more than 11,000 square kilometres cleared in the last year of rainforest. You know, and the problem, you know... It, it's it's just this juggernaut. It's just going on and on and on. And and the person in charge in Brazil, um, President Bolsonaro, you know, he's actively encouraging it. So it, it makes the problem even harder for concerned people to try to do something about it. Yeah, we are living in exceptional times in the sense that we're doing enormous damage, but also we're able to qualify and quantify that damage. The, the data that you've been looking at, I imagine is, is is very, very accurate these days with satellite imagery looking down at all of these cleared and, and burned areas. But as much as we live in exceptional times, we have an unexceptional crop of global politicians who are not addressing these issues in any meaningful way. And Bolsonaro is just one of them, I'm afraid. You know, we, we have politicians all over the world who are neglecting the biggest single issue. And I think that just going back to the finger wagging, I think, you know, it, it's, it is quite difficult, you know, for sort of armchair environmentalist in the UK to, to talk about what's going on in parts of Brazil where people are, are you know, trying to, to make a living by clearing the forest and growing crops to feed their family, so on and so forth. But one thing we have to remember is that we can draw lots of lines around our terrestrial landmass and we can colour them indifferently and we can give them flags and, and we can have different languages and we can look vaguely different from one another. But we are one species on one planet in one massive mess and we've got one chance to sort it out. So, you know, the fact is that we're not Brazilian. 
But we're eating something that's come out of Brazilian soil indirectly. It's going through a chicken first. And that connects us to Brazil. And I think that gives us enough right to say, hold on a moment. It's not just Brazil. It's the whole planet. You know, we are, as consumers, interacting with so many parts of this planet now that we have a a global responsibility, not just a local or an international responsibility, but a global responsibility to sort these issues out as that one species. Thanks to Chris Packham for coming on. Uh, As he says, it really is a global issue. Yeah, we need to be better informed about our food and better labelling on the food we eat is a start. And it's funny that just as that study he's talking about came out, uh, about the connection between soya fed to chickens, we also have had the news that lab-grown chicken meat is about to go on sale in restaurants in Singapore. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the mag that's already been in science fiction. Rowan, what is it this week? This week, we've got a great piece in the mag all about space volcanoes. It turns out there's quite a few different kinds of volcanoes around the solar system. OK, so we know about Olympus Mons on Mars, the biggest volcano in the solar system, but that's dead. And we know Venus still has actual volcanoes like we have on Earth. And we know about that because that might be where any interesting compounds in Venus's atmosphere are coming from. But are you saying there's stuff out beyond Mars? Yeah, it turns out there's loads of stuff. Uh, Past Mars is what's called the frost zone, where everything's frozen. And we didn't used to expect to find volcanic activity past that line. But one of Jupiter's moons, Io, it's got more than 400 volcanoes and their eruptions glow blue. And one of the most interesting places in the solar system is Enceladus. That's one of Saturn's moons. It's got a water volcano and it shoots plumes of water into space. Yeah, those are the plumes spotted by the Cassini spacecraft. Yeah, uh, the geology on Enceladus is referred to as cryovolcanism because it involves similar processes to those on Earth, but with materials that can flow at far lower temperatures. But then we've seen ice volcanoes on Triton, which is Neptune's largest moon. So that's really far out from the sun and bitterly cold. And in the case of Triton, it's not cryovolcanism because the explosions aren't fueled by this internal heat. It's it's a form of it's a new form of geology. They call it explosive geology. This is so cool. I love it. It kind of conjures up images of Willy Wonka and blue volcanoes and ice yeah. shooting out. There's loads of great stuff in this piece in the magazine this week by writer Natalie Starkey. Uh, and what's the sci-fi link? Uh, Well, I try not to do too much Doctor Who, but this week we have to mention it. Uh, In one of the classic old episodes, the Doctor ends up on a planet called Spiridon, where the Daleks have made a base, and the base is supplied and cooled by ice from ice volcanoes. And one more thing to say about all that, actually, is that all that volcanic activity we're finding in the solar system is really encouraging uh, for astrobiologists because it shows that many worlds are alive, geologically speaking, alive, and that means some may have the potential to support life. Now, as we discussed at the start of the show, in the UK, we're about to roll out the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And that couldn't come sooner as we've had a huge second wave of COVID-19 across the Northern Hemisphere. However, life has largely returned to normal in China, which, of course, was the country where the virus first made its mark. And in Australia, which has also pretty much got the virus under control. Uh, Rowan caught up with our Australasia correspondent, Donna Lu, to find out more. Hi, Donna. Hi from chilly London. How's it going? Hi, Rowan. It's going very well here in sunny Brisbane. A little uh, maybe too warm. 
Yeah, so it's summer for you, uh, and uh, you've got SARS-CoV-2 pretty well under control in Australia, right? Yeah, I I hate to be obnoxious, but life here is very normal in Australia. The the internal state borders have just reopened this week, and there's essentially zero community transmission. Uh, Melbourne and Victoria, which saw a big wave, um, a big second wave from cases in hotel quarantine, has now eliminated the virus. And because it's been managed so well here, it's safe to do things like fill 49,000 people into a stadium for a rugby match that happened a fortnight ago here in Brisbane. And I believe that's a record crowd size since the pandemic began. Wow, we can only dream of that kind of thing, a sporting occasion over here at the moment. Um, And what about in China? Um, They've also got uh, had some success, a lot of success, right? Yeah, so after the initial outbreak in Wuhan, China, like many East Asian countries, has done incredibly well. Uh, Places are bustling, you know, restaurants, cinemas, tourist sites. And in Wuhan in recent months, um, you might have seen um, some pictures that went viral, pun not intended, uh, um, of packed concerts and pool parties. So while there's been a few localised outbreaks in Chinese cities, the country never imposed a nationwide lockdown. And cases-wise, they had about 80,000 confirmed cases at the beginning of March, uh, but the rise then slowed. So in the following eight months, China's cumulative case count grew only by less than 7,000 cases. Yeah, it's amazing. So look, there's been some doubt thrown over the Chinese success. Is it too good to be believed? There are legitimate reasons to be concerned over the accuracy of their reporting. Uh, experts I spoke to pointed to China's top-down system of administration, which means that local governments can be reluctant to escalate issues uh, to more senior officials because they don't want to cause an alarm if it's unnecessary. And there were also some leaked documents that suggest the government you know, muddled its its numbers early on in the pandemic, let's say that, muddled them generously. Um <laughs> And it underestimated the infections. Yes, certainly missteps were made early on in the outbreak, both respect to the the transparency of reporting and the accuracy of diagnosis. I think it's important to keep in mind the constraints of dealing with a novel virus and um, uncertainty, particularly in the early days, about how it manifested clinically. Uh, I spoke to a researcher at the University of Hong Kong, Ben Cowling, who estimated back in March that if the criteria for COVID-19 diagnosis had been widened to include asymptomatic or milder cases uh, and also including cases without known links to Wuhan, by February 20, instead of the just 55,000 confirmed cases reported at the time, the real case numbers would have been somewhere around 232,000 people in China. Uh, Since then, of course, testing capacity has drastically increased and the diagnostic criteria, as we now know, have been broadened. Wow. It's kind of amazing to think that if on February the 20th we'd have had those much higher numbers, how the rest of the world might have reacted differently. I mean, we may not have done. We already knew we should have reacted faster than we did and we didn't. But uh, it's an interesting what if there. So can we be more sure about the accuracy of the case numbers they're reporting now? All of the people I spoke to seemed quite confident that China's reported case numbers are now reliable, Um, you know, with the caveat that there may be infections that go unnoticed and unreported, just like in other countries. But a lot of the researchers I spoke to were doubtful of any deliberate obfuscation. 
one told me that it's quite clear that they've succeeded in containing the virus because um, we would see evidence if there were outbreaks in, in large cities. For example, while while other countries, you know, the UK included, have, have gone into recession, China's economy actually grew in the third quarter of this year and domestic travel there has rebounded actually to about 80% of what, of what it was last year. Right, and I'm sure our politicians would love to replicate that success. So what's it down to? Primarily swift and aggressive public health interventions, uh, similar to what we've seen in Australia. So when a few cases are identified in certain Chinese cities in um, Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, for example, there's been mass testing and stringent local lockdowns. China's also avoided a a second wave from imported infections, largely because it's banned uh, foreign non-residents entering the country, like, like many other places, including Australia and New Zealand. And what about vaccines? As we've been talking about, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is approved in the UK. Where's China at with its own vaccines? So China actually currently has five vaccines in stage three, so final stage clinical trials. Uh, Because there aren't enough COVID infections in China to test the vaccines, actually testing them overseas in 16 other countries. So that includes Brazil, Mexico, Turkey. Three of the vaccines that they're developing are also licensed for emergency use within China, um, and there's one that's already been taken by a, a million people there. The other thing is that unlike the US, China has signed on to the COVAX Alliance, um, which is this global initiative uh, aiming to distribute 2 billion doses of um, coronavirus vaccines by the end of next year. And there's talk of, quote-unquote, vaccine diplomacy, and that China plans to send out hundreds of millions of vaccine doses, which may help to repair its international reputation, given the initial mishandling of the outbreak. That would be amazing. Thanks, Donna. I'm very jealous that you have your life pretty much back to normal at the moment. Um, And it's also very telling that some countries have the virus under control without any vaccines. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Michael and Donna from Australia. And thanks again to Chris Packham for joining us from the New Forest. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 30% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to this link, newscientist.com slash pod 30. And also don't miss your chance to go to the New Scientist end of year live party. And for that, go to newscientist.com slash events for more info. Uh, In the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Goodbye for now and take care. Goodbye. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.